Attention crew, this is your Captain Caliban speaking. This is a supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals, where we bring you news and tidbits from the world of Trek, also interviews with special guests, and a few little surprises along the way. Halloween has come once again. The most spookiest time of year is upon us. And as a dude with a Star Trek podcast, it tends to be a conflicted time for me. Trek just isn't that scary. And let me get in before you point out the Borg and Species 8472 and Janeway when she hasn't had her coffee. I know that there's scary monsters. We talked about them on last year's Halloween show. And a lot of monsters tend to be mystical or mythological in nature in horror movies. You know, they play on our fears of death and the unknown and clapping ghosts or whatever. Sci-fi movies have their share of scary creatures and even scary ideas. You know, environmental disaster is scary. Being stranded alone in space is scary. Being turned into gray goo. All these things are scary. But Trek is just so damn optimistic. You know, our characters are smart and they seek to understand everything they encounter. They've got sophisticated scanning equipment. They're heavily armed. We're just not going to get a lot of spooks in a regular episode of a Trek series. Sub Rosa notwithstanding. And it's not to say that the overwhelming forces or the exotic aliens or or creatures or phenomena that you see on Trek episodes don't ever provide us scares. They absolutely do. And, you know, this is where I would stop to mention Mpachnar or Contexts for Kings or Cat's Paw or Persistence of Vision. If I was trying to support your argument, I'm not. I'm supporting mine. We've done those already, right? We always talk about those. They, they come up on the same lists of the scary episodes every year. I'm tired. I don't want to fight anymore. I just want to eat candy corn in peace, you know? So this year, I'm giving Trek a rest in peace and highlighting instead some of my favorite space horror films. Well done, Star Trek. I know the Borg are coming back. I'm sure Emperor Giorgio will be up to something horrible in the near future on her show. We'll check back with you next year, but you let Hollywood at large take the con this year on this Halloween show. Space horror is maybe my favorite genre of film, and unfortunately, the trouble that Trek has in creating horror scenarios in space often extends to non-Trek films as well. Most space horror films are just creature feature films. Basically, you swap the leprechaun for an alien and you're good. And not to mention the inevitable chapters in every worn-out horror franchise where they literally end up in space. Uh, The aforementioned leprechaun, Friday the 13th, Hellraiser, all guilty of leaving orbit just to find new victims. In the best space horror films, yeah, you got a killer or a monster that's space-related as an alien or something. But space in those good films is more than just a backdrop. You're using the setting and the characters to create a unique mise-en-scene that's more than just a slumber party in space. The absolute bloody classic 1979 film Alien has been described reductively as a haunted house movie in space, which is 100% accurate. However, because it features blue-collar astronauts not only running from a monster, but also struggling against procedure, bureaucracy, technology, personal resentments, and a rogue AI. I mean, you can't get that in a Friday the 13th movie unless all the campers are 40-year-old Exxon employees who have set the camp to self-destruct. Which sounds like a great remake of Indian Summer, by the way. Somebody get me Alan Arkin on the phone.
My favorite type of space horror film is the one where a bunch of technically skilled, racially diverse space people are trapped in a remote location, i.e. space, and everything is going wrong, and also something is trying to murder you. And that's like 90% of space horror films anyway. And technically skilled, racially diverse space people certainly sounds like a Starfleet crew. So why can't Trek do space horror? Whatever. Given Trek a rest this year. So today on the show, I'll be talking about five of my favorite space horror flicks, which, believe it or not, are not all haunted houses in space, but like 80% of them maybe are. So that's coming up in just a little bit. But first, coming off the heels of my talk last week with Catherine Valenti about the TNG episode where no one has gone before, which, by the way, is existentially terrifying when you think about it. I mean, Picard's dead mom shows up for tea. But anyway, Catherine and I talked about the similarities between sci-fi and fantasy storytelling and how many Trek stories are steeped in these fantasy tropes. It was an enlightening talk, but I wanted to go deeper into the topic. And to do that, I called up science fiction and fantasy author Mary Fan. Mary is the author of several YA and adult series, and she writes in a range of genres from sci-fi to steampunk to space adventures to dark fantasy and more. She's the co-editor of the Brave New Girls series of sci-fi anthologies featuring teen heroines. And during our discussion, we talk about the links between sci-fi and fantasy, not just in Trek, but in genre fiction and mainstream films as well. We had a great talk. Stick around to the end to hear where you can buy Mary's work and learn more about Brave New Girls, which is such a good title. Okay, set your phaser to kill, your tricorder to motion sensing, surround yourself with red shirts, and don't expect anyone to hear you scream. And with that, let's get underway. My guest on the show today is Mary Fan. Mary is an author whose novels span a number of genres, from steampunk to sci-fi to dark fantasy and more. She's also the co-editor of the Brave New Girls series of anthologies featuring tech-savvy teen heroines. Her latest YA fantasy novel, Windborn, is out on February 11th of next year. Mary, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you here. I always ask new guests to the show how they first discovered Star Trek. How did you become a Star Trek fan? I remember, so I was a kid of the 90s, and that was when Next Generation was always on TV. Yeah. It was always just kind of in the background, like my mom would watch it now and then. But I didn't pay that much attention because, you know, little kids, not sure what's going on. I just kind of was like, it's that space show. Yeah. And I actually rediscovered it, really, because of, this is going to be controversial, but it's because of the Abrams movies. Oh. Um, (laughs) Yeah, I know. I think I just got myself into a lot of trouble. Oh, no. But I mean, you know, it was you know big screen re-release, remake, whatever. And I went to the movies like everyone else, and I loved it. Yeah. And it made me go back and um, want to watch, you know, where it all came from. And so then I I started with the motion picture or the motionless picture, and yeah. <laughs> fortunately didn't stop there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a very different animal than uh, Star Trek 2009. That's that's for sure. Yeah. But then I saw Wrath of Khan and was like, okay, I'm in. Oh, then, yeah, that's where, that's the top of the uh, roller coaster. Now you're on the downslope and ready to go. I know that uh, as a Star Trek fan of a slightly older vintage, uh, when the 2009 movie came out, you know, I was a little mixed on it. But I've really learned to appreciate it and the Kelvin films over time. Uh, I went to a, a big con this year and did a live panel about Star Trek 2009. And we kind of had a little fun with it. We talked about some of the negative online comments, which are mostly substanceless. But we talked about how we all definitely, uh, as 10 years have gone by, came around and really enjoy the uh, the Abrams films now. Yeah, I mean, it was very different from the original. So I understand why if you're an old school fan, you would find it absurd. Yeah. But <laughs> it did its job, which was introducing, you know, a new group of people to the franchise. And so 
think that's a good thing overall. Yeah, it brought you in. Yep, exactly. <laughs> and now I'm hooked. Uh, I follow you on social media, and I'm wondering if I should have added circus performer to your bio. <laughs> I mean, it's something I do just for fun. I'm not, you know, any kind of pro. In fact, I am quite terrible. You might have seen me tweet me wiping out yesterday just because it looked so ridiculous. I was like, okay, this is so absurd. I have to share it. How did, I think they would make a really hilarious sound effect when I fell yeah, off the trapeze. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> how did you uh, How did you start doing that? Uh, it was random, really. Um, you know, I live in New York City, and they always have all these, you know, fun classes and whatnot. Yeah. One day, um, I had a friend who was visiting from North Carolina, and she wanted to do something New York-y, so we signed up for an aerial sales class because, you know, it's one of those weird New York things. <laughs> and I got hooked, and it turned out the studio was very close to my workplace. And I was like, oh, I can just come here after work. Why not? Let me just give this a shot. And, you know, if it lasts like a month, fine. I'll say I did that. But yeah, it's been a year and I'm still doing it. So whoops. That's, yeah. Do, do you guys have <laughs> um, you, you practice your skills? Do you have like shows? Do you have like a graduation thing that you uh, can invite people to to watch? Um, it's an ongoing thing. And they do have intensives that end in um, in a student showcase. Okay. But that's for the intermediate students. So I'm still a little while off from that. Okay, I see. I see. We often don't cross the streams into that other star franchise on this show. But you were <laughs> you were interviewed in a recent issue of Star Wars Insider magazine about your trip to Skellig Michael, the Star Wars island seen in episodes seven and eight. That's right. I was very excited. Uh, how did uh, how did that come about? Ever since I watched The Force Awakens and found out that, you know, that final scene was filmed in a real place, I was like, oh, my goodness, I have to go visit. Like, it looks beautiful. Yeah. And it seems like it looks exactly the way it does in the movie. So it did take quite a bit of planning. I think I first started trying to plan something like pretty much the instant the movie came out yeah. and finally got there last year, which was 2018. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, it was it was a fun trip. Getting onto that island is actually a bit more of a process than you think. Like I really? thought, oh, you know, it's a, you know, I thought it was just a you know, Irish tourist site. Like you just buy a ticket like anywhere else. But the thing is, this island was chosen by monks about a thousand years ago because it was so hard to get to. They wanted to be extra isolated because it made them feel closer to God. Yeah. And so to this day, it is nearly impossible to land on that inhospitable spit of rock. Like if the waves are just a little bit too tall, you're just going to miss your rock and crash your boat. Oh no. And so it actually took us two tries to get on there because... The first days, the waves were just too big. And the boatman, you know, he's been doing this for 30 years, was like, yeah, sorry, guys. Like, we can't land today. And I was like, okay. oh, no, I flew all this way. <laughs> but fortunately, the second day, the seas were a lot calmer. And now you've got a bunch of people looking for porgs uh, on the island. <laughs> well, the reason they made porgs is because um, there's puffins on that island. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And they're just all over the place. <laughs> That's so cool. Uh, everybody's looking forward to Christmas and the release of uh, Rise of Skywalker, except maybe all of China. There's a phenomenon that Westerners might find very strange, which is that Star Wars isn't that popular in China. Uh, do you know why that is? So my parents are Chinese and I have a lot of family over there. Sure. And as far as I can tell, it was just never a thing. Like I didn't discover Star Wars until I was in middle school, which is still pretty young. But, you know, for an American kid, it's kind of like, oh, yeah, wait, where were you like for the past, <laughs> like, you know, for all of grade school? Yeah. And it was because it just was not a thing in our household. Like I just was vaguely aware of it just from being American. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think it's because, you know, the original movies came out in the 70s when there was not a lot of Hollywood in China. Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, we didn't have that generation of kids who grew up with it. And it's because of that, you don't have a generation of parents passing it on to current kids. And yeah. really, I, I don't think it's anything in particular other than that it just 
was not a thing. Yeah. And a, a lot of the uh, current movies focus on the nostalgia of the older films and looking at the older characters and their ongoing stories. And so I can see how that would be a barrier too. But, you know, going forward after episode nine, if they're all new stories, maybe uh, maybe they'll start to hit in China. Yeah. I mean, I really think it will depend on whether the filmmakers can find a way to make a Star Wars movie that can be watched as a standalone. Because yeah, right yeah. now, unless you've watched them all, you know, you watch like, you know, <laughs> right, right. I don't know, The Force Awakens without having seen the others, you might enjoy it, but you won't get it yeah yeah uh that's why um i'm hoping the mandalorian uh really kind of goes off on its own that that show looks really great oh it looks amazing i can't wait uh but anyway back to star trek uh thanks for joining me <laughs> thanks for joining me on the show we met at short leaf con this year uh which is nominally a star trek convention but of course it also encompasses uh, other science fiction fandoms and sci-fi in general and here you are a sci-fi author but also a fantasy author author of epic fantasy steampunk dystopian fantasy if somebody tried to make sure leave a fantasy only con or make a point out of having sci-fi and fantasy being equally represented there i think some con goers might have a problem with that and yet sci-fi and fantasy are more closely linked than most people might realize, you know, Shore Leave, the TOS episode that gives the con its name, is probably one of the most fantastical episodes of the original series. It's true. I mean, the, the, a rabbit with a pocket watch is the logo. <laughs> yeah, I'm what, picturing what, it right now. What do you I'm want like, here? <laughs> yeah, that is pretty trippy. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Theodore Sturgeon, the writer of that episode, was a legendary sci-fi writer, um, of course, writing many short stories and novels. But many of those would be considered fantasy by modern publishers. Um, in fact, I think a lot of stories from the classic era of sci-fi from authors like Sturgeon or Asimov or Bradbury or Heinlein uh, could be seen as borderline cases between sci-fi and fantasy having many fantasy elements. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, um, historically, there wasn't this distinction between sci-fi and fantasy until yeah. probably around that that golden age in the mid-century. Um, once upon a time, if you wrote about, you know, a human going to the moon, it was fantasy because there was two categories, really. It was either the real world or <laughs> yeah. it wasn't. Yeah, and uh, yeah, exactly. And a lot of people think of uh, like an N.H.G. Wells as an early sci-fi writer, but I don't think that he would have uh, hung his tile necessarily as that. Right. The original series and The Next Generation, like as shows... You know, they employ science and technology in their settings, but they still retain the bones of like a 50s and 60s brand of TV storytelling. They're very moralistic. Uh, our heroes are very noble. Um, There's some sort of monster or evil person and whatever the solution is, you know, the right piece of technology, the right setting for the phasers or the right speech from Captain Kirk or Picard. That's like the incantation you know, or the talisman that breaks the spell and sets the, the kingdom back to right. It feels very much like fantasy to me sometimes. It really does. And, you know, depending on what episode you watch, you know, sometimes it's kind of clear that the techno babble is just an excuse to have a plot that's basically fantasy. You know, and I, like you could just change the setting from outer space to, I don't know, like the mountains somewhere and change all that tech to magic. And it's the same story. Yeah, right. Exactly. There's a lot of fantasy tropes that are all through Trek episodes, even excluding episodes like where there's a giant cat and literal witches <laughs> you know, running around. But I, I was talking to a uh, fantasy author, uh, Catherine Valenti, about this on a previous show, and we were trying to pick out some of the different tropes. And y you've got a character like uh, Wesley, who's who's a very uh, sort of chosen one, a stereotype um, he's got a, he's literally got a fairy godfather in the traveler. <laughs> he's got this guy that shows up and sort of fixes things uh, for him. And you've got like Q is like a literal trickster God, 
but maybe he's also actually God or like as far as the Star Trek universe can have a God. Like he's always toying with them. But of course, his whole frame story is that he comes in and challenges humanity and later at the end is giving the final exam. But he's also kind of helping out. He's also kind of saying, I think you guys are I think you guys are OK. You passed the test. A lot of tests that need to be passed in, in fantasy, a lot of worthiness that has to be determined. And um, in DS9, you know, they had that whole storyline where they call them aliens you know the, yeah. the Bajorans call them gods and it's very fantasy I think especially with the way that show ended yeah which the ending of DS9 is great but as the years go on it becomes more and more frustrating for me because I know that uh Avery Brooks has said that he's done with Cisco but you know Picard Star Trek Picard looking forward to it going to be a great show but where's like DS9, the next generation, you know, where's the uh, <laughs> where's the follow up to that story? Like, I can't believe that The Visitor, you know, that episode where Jake uh, grows into an old man and only sees his father sporadically. I can't believe that that is uh, less depressing than the actual finale of DS9. Like he's, <laughs> he said he was coming back. <laughs> when is he going to come back? Yeah, well, never say never, right? They're reviving everything these days. That is true. Yeah, and Avery Brooks is still out there, so maybe they can maybe they can talk him back into that. In your opinion, do you consider that there to be a hard line between sci-fi and fantasy or is there is there a specific I guess I should say is there a specific difference in what the two genres try to accomplish or convey? I think it depends on the writers. I think maybe once upon a time in a super traditional sense, um fantasy was more about magic and mythology and sci-fi was more about technology and taking the technology you see around you and thinking about what it might do in the future. But that line's become so blurred that I really think they're both kind of subgenres of speculative fiction. That's yeah. Speculative fiction. That's a great umbrella sort of term. And yeah, I think that's a great point that you make about how sci-fi seems like Sometimes it's uh, moralistic, uh, as fantasy tales often are, but also like it's trying to project, you know, what what the future is going to be like. And that's why I think that Trek in a lot of ways is sometimes uh, more fantasy than sci-fi, because it's projecting like this future that we want, but it's not necessarily saying we definitely think this is what it's going to be. You know, in the um, backstory of Trek uh, from the 60s, you've got the the very uh, popular theory or feeling of the time that we would definitely have some kind of nuclear war and that's there but then there's also this the moralizing element where once that happens we'll get past that we'll meet other aliens we'll fix our problems we'll join the um the international uh, or intergalactic community i guess and so i don't know like something like the expanse uh which is a you know a modern sci-fi tale is really just saying no things are going to be pretty much the same there's going to be corporations <laughs> there's going to be you know people are going to be self-serving uh and double dealing and sh yeah trek is like is this fantasy kingdom if you will where um things really can uh, magic is real it's just uh you know arthur c clarke and magic of sci-fi sure and then you look at something like the marvel universe and you get really confused <laughs> because you've got something like Thor, which is literally mythology, yeah. and then you've got like Iron Man, which is very techy, and then you're like, wait, but it's all the same universe. Is it sci-fi or fantasy? Yeah. I'd say both. Yeah, I love that that line in Thor that he's got where he's like, oh, uh, what you call magic is just science to my people, and it like it seems like the MCU is very allergic to having magic, uh, specifically like really getting down and saying this is magic. They've got Doctor Strange, and even when he talks to the Ancient One in Doctor Strange, she's like like, 
well, energy fields or quantum physics flow. Some people call it magic. It seems like they don't want to have like hocus pocus abracadabra <laughs> spells in it. I, I wonder why that is. Uh, maybe it's because they kicked off the franchise with Iron Man and they're trying to stay <laughs> under some sort of sci-fi umbrella. Who yeah. Knows? They just like that feeling of like super science and super technology. <laughs> Well, as somebody who's written in a number of genres, when you're developing a story and a setting that's, say, maybe more fantasy than sci-fi, do you find yourself coming up with ideas and thinking, mm, this is this is a little too science fiction for, for what I'm working on, or vice versa? I've never actually run into that. I think it's because when I'm in a fantasy state of mind, I'm thinking about, you know, old school mythologies, legends, etc. Yeah, yeah. um, and that's why my latest book, it has, it's called, you know, Stronger Than a Bronze Dragon. It has steampunk quote-unquote technology but even in the text i say hey it's technology powered by magic right oh you're being explicit about that yeah um it's not it's, some people call it magic it's just technology to us <laughs> like thor <laughs> how do you think star trek has influenced your work specifically um it's hard to say because it's been i feel like part of my subconscious all my life mm -hmm. um the very first thing i ever wrote i was 12 years old and i wrote about a group of intrepid explorers exploring outer space and it wasn't until years later that I realized I'd written thinly veiled Star Trek fan fiction, even though at the time I did not actually watch Star Trek. Okay. Because that's just how pervasive Star Trek was yeah. in my world. You know, I just kind of subconsciously absorbed it. So, I mean, I think there's definitely elements of it that has influenced me. It's hard to pinpoint exactly what was Star Trek specifically and what was, you know, sci-fi tropes, um, genre tropes in general. Yeah. I think Star Trek is one of the few utopian sci-fis we see out there. Most of them are dystopian. Yeah, it's and we've talked about that a lot on this show this season, um, the fact that maybe that in this modern world, that idea of utopia is becoming less popular. I feel like every time we have a new Star Trek series, it seems like they're trying to uh, poke holes in the idea of that utopia. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Um, Gene Roddenberry very aspirationally thought that we'd have this amazing future, but I think the modern, or at least I should say postmodern way to look at stories is, yeah, but what are the problems and what are the lies that people tell themselves? And, you know, what's the seedy underbelly of that uh, future? Sure. But at the same time, I don't think it hurts to, you know, try to imagine something better, imagine something you, we might want to work toward rather than just something we want to avoid. Oh, absolutely. I think that's how we can get closer to that thing is by trying to make it um, manifest or at least examine how we could get there and practice through fiction. Right. And, you know, you have a utopian society depicted in fiction. It starts to feel a little more real than just, you know, thinking about it in the abstract. It makes me wonder, though, why we've got so many like Mad Max-esque dystopias, though, also <laughs> being uh, published and uh, showing up at the box office. It's like you've got these people that want to do an aspirational utopian thing. And then people are like, no, nah, it's going to be like diesel cannibals the whole way. So I'm not sure uh, who's going to win out there. I think there's a lot of sci-fi fans who would never touch a fantasy book, but I don't I don't think those fans think about the fact that many sci-fi tropes, you know, come directly from fantasy, uh, you know, until we had like science proper science fiction was basically uh, just fantasy. And I think that sci-fi of the atomic age tended to be very aspirational. Science was always the answer. Sometimes it was the problem or the complication, but the answer was usually more science. Uh, and I love that as sci-fi progressed and developed, authors and readers started going back and exploring regressive time periods and technologies like steampunk or diesel punk, uh, not just to remove the modern conveniences um, that we start to see in our real world, but all to also explore uh, less modern societal ideas and mores. When you write uh, in fantasy settings that are uh, historical, 
uh, or quasi-historical like steampunk or um, like uh, Stronger Than a Bronze Dragon, are you trying to examine the the social uh, constructs and just mores that they had then as compared to what we have now? In a sense. I mean, I tend to write about, you know, strong and of course you're talking about an era we're not as common as they are now. And so there's, I feel like it's unavoidable that you're making some kind of commentary. At the same time, I'm a little bit over just sort of telling the same old stories about the same old societies over and over yeah. and then having sort of horrible retrograde elements there and saying, oh, it has to be this way because it's historically accurate. <laughs> Screw that. It's, it's fantasy. You're allowed to make things up. You're allowed to imagine sure. a better past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Hopefully. Yeah. Uh, when you read, what kind of books do you find yourself drawn to? Um, primarily teen sci-fi and fantasy. Um, you know, sci-fi and fantasy has always been my bread and butter. I just find it much more interesting than anything set in the real world because I live in the real world and <laughs> I don't want to, you know, keep re living in that when I'm reading. Yeah. And then the reason I tend to gear toward teen stuff is because it tends to be a little more lighthearted, a little more fun. And I think it tends to push boundaries a little more. I, that, that's, yeah, I, I can totally identify with that. When I pick up a, I don't have a lot of time to read these days, unfortunately, but when I pick up a fantasy or a sci-fi book, I want something that completely throws me for a loop and a, like a world that I can barely recognize. Um, I was thinking about uh, a book I read recently was uh, The Quantum Thief by Hanu Ranajimi. And it is set in a world that is nominally sci-fi and a f the future of our solar system, but it is so, it's almost fantasy in how detached uh, everybody's daily lives are from our actual you know, world, or even something like Star Trek that you would find uh, recognizable. That sounds fascinating. Yeah. Uh, I'm a big comic book fan, although magic and fantasy... Uh, you see a lot in comic books. Uh, superhero comics are basically just fantasy with the slightest nod to like soft, you know, soft as cheese sci-fi. Uh, you know, you get doused with radioactive goo or you got an extra chromosome. Now you can fly and you can throw fireballs like the X-Men are just magic, essentially. True. Which I don't, I'm, that's not a criticism at all. Um, I, uh, you know, I love the X-Men. I love the uh, the Avengers and uh, and that sort of thing. Do you, are you a comic book fan? I like comic book media i haven't read that many comics myself sure. unfortunately mostly because it's just been a matter of access and i keep yeah, saying yeah, i'm yeah. going to do something about this <laughs> do you, if you i know that you're a fan of uh, comic book films do you have a favorite comic book film you know what for a while it was the x-men franchise um i'm not a huge fan of what they've done with it oh, recently yeah. so yeah. um not quite sure if I'll stick to that but i really like the um the original back in 2000 that is a yeah that is a great film uh i really like x2 as well um yes just, you know, you think about taking a making a sequel to a film and having to do the kind of the same thing over again. And were we going to dilute the premise? But, yeah, the way that um, X2 just doubles down on what's in the first movie and adds more characters and more conflict. And also just like the Magneto mystique buddy pair is just one for the ages. That's a great cinematic couple there. I agree. I thought it was a little weird what they did with them in a first class and those sequels, but... Yeah. What can you do? Well, again, it's that same thing. If they like, oh, people like that. It's good. Let's double down on it and kind of throttle it, <laughs> throttle it to death. But I saw an article uh, just the other day on The Atlantic, and the title was STEM is overrated. Uh, STEM, of course, S-T-E-M, stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, and Mathematics, and specifically careers and education in those disciplines. And I was like, okay, Atlantic, clickbait achieved. Let's see what you got. And the article was a bust, really. It was actually more about the changing job marketplace, and it was kind of weakly critical of some people's emphasis on STEM training for current students. And it was mostly boiled down to, like, 
you know, you're probably not going to get the job you want, yada, yada, yada. It wasn't a good article. Um, as a co-editor of the Brave New Girls anthology, why would you argue that STEM education, especially for young girls and women, is important? Because STEM really is what pushes boundaries in, you know, technology and in the way we live right now. And it's one of the few areas where, you know, it's a little bit less subjective than something like the arts. You know, either the formula works or it doesn't. Yeah. And that can be a, you know, great source of, I guess, security, especially in a world that still has a lot of biases. Yeah. And honestly, like, I think there's going to be more technology jobs in the future, especially as we become more digital, um, more connected than before. Yeah, that I, I totally agree. Um, speaking of bad faith arguments on the internet, I also saw recently, actually, I see this quite a bit. Uh, I saw a post on a Star Trek Facebook group about, you know, about Garrick being gay or bisexual the person didn't like that. And the po the post boiled down to, I don't think he was gay. I don't understand the argument about wanting to see yourself on shows that you like. And you get one guess about the identity of the person who posted that. And you're correct. It was a straight white dude. <laughs> why do you think? Oh, boy. Yeah. Why do you think it's so impo uh, important to see yourself on screen? Like this guy doesn't think so. Because, I mean, what so much of what you think you are is dependent on what the world tells you you can be. And I think that's just you know, a human trait, you know, you want to look for a role model, you want to look for something, whether in fiction or in real life, to aspire to. Yeah. And that's why I think it's so important for people to be, you know, depicted in media in all their diverse backgrounds. Um, you know, as someone who grew up with not a lot of visible role models, I often felt like there was things I just wasn't allowed to do because people like me didn't do them. Yeah. One of them being writing because, you know, writers were white. And I was this Chinese American girl, you know, parents, who are literal immigrants. And I was like, well, I can't be a writer. Like people like me don't write books unless we are specifically writing about the immigrant experience, which I don't want to do. I want to write sci-fi fantasy. Yes. Fortunately, that's changing now as a whole generation grows up and is like, no, that's not the case. And I think future generations won't have these, um, these same burdens because of it. That's so, that's so interesting. Uh, just the idea of, um, being, a, I'm not sure how to how to put this because I am that straight white dude, I guess. But like <laughs> being a uh, being a Chinese American author and thinking, man, I want to write. So am I going to be uh, am I going to be Amy Tan or am I going to be the guy that wrote uh, Crazy Rich Asians and just saying, <laughs> uh, not interested in that. Great, that's great. But yeah, I just want to do something crazy. I want to write sci-fi. I want to write fantasy. And I think it's I, I think that you are a great example of somebody that people can look to if they want to get into this sort of thing. Uh, also, maybe the small percentage of people who want to get into the circus uh, can also uh, <laughs> look at you and your uh, social media uh, as well. Uh, where can people find Brave New Girls if they want to learn more about it? Um, Brave New Girls is available on all major ebook re retailers. Um, it's also available in paperback, Amazon, Barnes and Noble. When in doubt, just go to my website, maryfan.com. I have links to everything. Great. And uh, the am I correct that the a portion of the proceeds are donated to a scholarship fund? Yes. Um, all the proceeds are donated to the Society of Women Engineer, Society of Women Engineers Scholarship Fund. So people uh, definitely check that out. I have a link in the show notes where people can check out Brave New Girls. And uh, Windborn will be out on February 11th of next year. Where can people pre-order or buy that? A pre-order link will be available also on my website um, probably in about a month or so. Okay. So maryfan.com. Check that out. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much. Thanks again to Mary for talking sci-fi and fantasy with me. If you want to discover more of her work, head to maryfan.com on the internet or follow her at at astralcult, A-S-T-R-A-L-C-O-L-T on Twitter. 
You can find out more about Brave New Girls at bravenewgirls.weebly.com. If you want to purchase Mary's work, you can do that. I've got a link in the show notes that will take you to her Amazon author page where you can find all of her books. When you get to Amazon by clicking through our Amazon links or through our Amazon banner at enterprisingindividuals.com, a percentage of your transaction comes back to us at no extra cost to you and helps keep the warp core lit here. And this counts for anything. It's not just novels. In fact, you can bookmark that link. And when you click through to Amazon that way, whatever you buy, the same deal applies. It's a great way to help support the show. Anytime you shop on Amazon, click through our Amazon banner or through your bookmark or your save link and shop away. And maybe you're saying, you know, Mary's books sound great, but what is this Indian summer you speak of? To which I would say, oh, you sweet Indian summer child. Indian Summer is a 1993 film starring Bill Paxton and Diane Lane. It's about a bunch of 30-somethings who all have a reunion at their old summer camp, uh, you know, in the Northeast, run by Kooky Allen Arkin. And yeah, they fall in love or back in love, and they find themselves, and Kevin Pollock's doing funny voices in it. It's like the big chill goes to camp. And it's the kind of movie that Wet Hot American Summer is making fun of, if that grounds it for you. And it's available on Amazon, and it's neither sci-fi nor fantasy, unless you count Bill Paxton's fantastic mullet in the film. But I would also say, if you like what you hear on Enterprising Individuals, and you want to help support the show, why not head to our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash EISTpod. It's there that you can sign up to be a crew member of the show for a small monthly amount. You can get access to exclusive subscriber content like our DS9 and Voyager recaps, live shows, extended interviews, and more. So get involved. Join the crew of the USS Enterprising Individuals. Just head to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D. Anyone can join our crew, even Kevin Pollack. All are welcome at patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-Pod. And as always, the best way to support the show is to tell a friend. Anything you contribute to the show will be appreciated and will help keep us flying. Thanks. All right, here we go. My top five scary space movies. Now, these aren't the best examples or even the best movies necessarily. They might not actually be my favorites, but they're ones that I think are important uh, or overlooked or just, you know, like and really good. And I want you to know about them too. I'll just say right now, yes, Alien, uh, yeah, Event Horizon, um, yeah, Life Force, I guess, uh, Alien is Alien, uh, Event Horizon went unappreciated for a long time, but I think it's getting its due now, and if you haven't seen Life Force, come on, you call yourself a Patrick Stewart fan? Well, here's my list, number five is Pitch Black, again, this is a movie that it's probably has gotten its due over the years, I mean, there was two sequels, uh, and <laughs> if Vin Diesel gets his way, there's going to be a million more. Uh, but yeah, it came out in 2000, stars Vin Diesel, probably like the first real main thing that you'd see and go, oh, yeah, okay, Vin Diesel, like this is his sort of starring role. It's directed by David Toohey, who also worked on the other Riddick films and uh, a couple other things. He um, like, wrote a lot of movies. He wrote like, um, you know, Waterworld. And like The Fugitive, he's like, he's written a lot of like genre stuff, but he's just one of those, you know, I'm, I'm not like the comic book guy. I'm a, I'm a Hollywood screenwriter. I, I write films. So he writes all kinds of stuff, The Fugitive and different things like that. Uh, the movie also stars Rodham Mitchell, who is great. And man, what happened with that? Like she should have been huge. I know that she's been in movies and has done stuff, but this movie came out in 2000 and it's almost 2020. And where's the Rodham Mitchell uh, action franchise? Like it should have been uh, it should have been a big thing for her. Uh, it's got Keith David in it, which always great. 
Uh, if you don't, I, I hope you know what the movie's about. If you don't, uh, it's a very interesting premise, which, yeah, it cribs a little bit from Isaac Asimov, but a ship uh, crash lands on this planet, and it's carrying um, different passengers, um, you know, just people like refugees. Uh, there's also like a military guy on board, and then there is a um, Riddick, basically. There's a Riddick, uh, an escaped convict who's this horrible guy, uh, and he's like the most dangerous criminal in the universe or whatever. And they think, okay, we're fine here. Uh, we'll just wait for somebody to come pick us up. And oops, we can't find Riddick, but we'll just be careful. And it turns out, no, this planet is um, very bright. It has no daylight except for every 50 years or so. Uh, all the moons and everything converge and block all the three suns. And it becomes dun dun dun, pitch black. And then at that point, um, bad things happen. These nocturnal fleshy creatures come out. And uh, it becomes that kind of get to the chopper horror movie, you know, where people are getting picked off one by one. Even people you really like, like Keith David or um, Claudia Black is in this because it's an Australian film, uh, more or less. Uh, and so, yeah, it's just it's really good. Um, sequels are uh, not great. There's good parts about Chronicles of Riddick. And I can't remember if I saw Riddick. I probably should give it a shot. But yeah, for what it was, it's just a nice, tight uh, movie. Uh, that features a kind of interesting world that I wanted to see more of, or at least I thought I did until I saw Chronicles of Riddick. Um, yeah, so I mean, if you haven't seen this, uh, you're, you're going to like it. And it's a real spook fest. Like, it's, uh, it's pretty gross and it's pretty scary, and I like it a lot. <laughs> Number four might not even belong on this list, but I don't care. It's Under the Skin from 2013, a movie directed and co-written by Jonathan Glazer, who um, made Sexy Beast, which if you haven't seen that, you got to see that movie. Uh, and it's basically like, I don't know, he's done a lot of commercials and like music videos and he has a really cool and um, intense visual style, but hasn't made a lot of film films. And I, if they're like this and like Sexy Beast, um, I wish he would. Uh, if you don't know what the film's about, it stars Scarlett Johansson as an alien. I'm not ruining anything to tell you that. Uh, and she basically is like this Black Widow type figure who stalks men on the streets of Glasgow, I believe. And she slowly sort of learns to, she starts off as this like detached, weird, you know, ba barely human creature and starts to sort of gain a connection to humanity or, or her, her humanity as it is. And a lot of the film was, it, you know, she goes out and like grabs these men off the street. And a lot of the film was um, shot uh, like guerrilla style, like they just literally had Scarlett Johansson in this big wig. I feel like I would recognize Scarlett Johansson, but maybe this is after the Avengers movies, uh, wherever she was. Uh, and she would like literally talk to men. And they'd wait outside of pubs. So when the pubs are coming out, she'd talk to men on the street, hopefully with like a team of security guys like in the van and just have like these improv conversations because the guy doesn't know that they're doing a movie. And then I guess if the conversations got to a certain point, then they would go, okay, stop, stop. So we're shooting a movie. And do you want to be in it? Because at this point she will take you somewhere and bad things will happen to you. And so that's sort of how they built those sort of vignettes that happen. There's also something that I really enjoy in the film, which is like a very alien. There's these sequences where something is happening and you don't know what it is. And you see liquids pouring into things. You see lights going on and off and it's, kind of like how do you communicate what alien technology is or alien psychology. It's so weird and separate. And then you've got this very mundane, oi, we're drinking in the pub in, in Scotland sort of setting. 
Uh, it's amazing. Um, a lot of people uh, have criticized the film for being too slow. I say, come on, man. I mean, like, what do you, what, what do you want it to do? Talk down to you? Uh, it's only 108 minutes long. Um, yeah, so definitely check it out. Uh, a great performance by somebody who... I guess she can play, I don't know if she can play a tree, but she can play an alien. Uh, personally, uh, I have some disagreements with Scarlett Johansson, but I think that she just gets better and better every film that she's in. And so, yeah, check out Under the Skin. Beautiful film. <laughs> Number three is a film called Prospect. I think I talked about this uh, previously, maybe just in passing on this show. Uh, and I have talked about it on um, Just Enough Trope, our, our flagship show on the network. We did a review of it. And I actually wrote a review um, for a separate um, publication. Uh, this is a great film. It is zero budget. Uh, it's actually based on a short film, um, also called Prospect. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It stars Pedro Pascal in what is essentially his demo reel for The Mandalorian. He plays this sort of space bandit or bounty hunter. Um, there, he meets a young girl named Sophie Thatcher. And I'm oversimplifying this greatly, but what I love about this movie is it is kind of, it's uh, it's in the great tradition of like, it's hard sci-fi, but like, can we push, what if there's stuff that we don't know? Or what if there's like alien creatures or features to alien planets that don't violate physics, but are basically hard sci-fi? And so it takes place in a world where, uh, in, in like the underbelly of a galaxy, you get the idea that there is um, other higher levels of technology and society, but we're out on the fringes here. And it has been compared favorably to Firefly. And I would say if Firefly wasn't funny <laughs> and involved you having to chop off your limbs to survive, uh, that would be prospect. And so Pedro Pascal and this girl have to form this sort of grudging bond to get off this horrible planet that they're on. And it's got like very low tech, you know, duct taped spaceships uh, or maybe spaceships, but space suits. Um, you know, like old West guns. Um, and yeah, there's just like a lot of tension in the film and there's a final like sort of shootout that just belongs in a Sergio Leone Western or something like it's just really, really great. You can see that um, Pedro Pascal is going to get his due now if he ever takes that helmet off in the Mandalorian, but definitely check out Prospect. <laughs> Number four is a film that I think probably people know about, but I, sadly, it took me forever to discover this film, and so I sing its praises whenever I can, and that is the 2009 uh, science fiction horror film Pandorum, which stars Ben Foster, who's another guy who put him, Rada Mitchell, Pedro Pascal, man, this movie's getting good, put all these guys in a movie, uh, maybe ScarJo can play uh, the tree they meet under, I don't know. Uh, this movie is about... A colony ship, basically, a generation ship. Uh, and I love uh, generation ship stories, the perfect kind of story where, you know, you are heading out somewhere, but it's going to be a long, dark journey and you're probably going to be asleep. But what if you wake up and you weren't supposed to wake up? No, no, not that Chris Pratt movie. This is Pandorum. And uh, yeah, that's what happens. And so <laughs> Ben Foster wakes up. Oh, and Dennis Quaid is there, too. Uh, he They wake up and... They think something's gone wrong with the ship. They have to check it out. But then they find out that I, I don't even want to tell you what happens because I don't want to ruin. Uh, there's a lot of like twists. There's one or two twists that are really dumb. And I, you know, I wish they weren't in the movie, but there are other twists that, you know, blow your mind. 
um, how do you do like how do you do like zombies? How do you do like you know, aliens that aren't aliens because this is like hard sci-fi on a colony ship? And so Ben Foster wakes up and all hell is broken loose on this ship. Hell so bad that uh, it, it kills Daryl from The Walking Dead. Slight spoiler. So yeah, check it out. It's the kind of movie that ends, and I think that they kind of wanted to do or or, or um, had planned to do like a sequel. A Paul W. S. Anderson of um, Event Horizon at all um, was one of the producers on this film, and it didn't do very well. And it's probably better that there isn't a sequel, but it definitely leaves it open uh, where you go, man. I wish that somebody would like pick this up and run with it, like do a Pandorum comic book sequel story or just because I want to know more about this world. Uh, very cool. Pandorum, spelled like it sounds, at number two. <laughs> number one is not even a horror movie. <laughs> it's back to space westerns. But I don't know. There's a lot of like scary, uh, tense moments in it. And that is Outland uh, from 1981, starring Sean Connery and Peter Boyle, directed by... Uh, Peter Hyams, uh, another guy who's just directed a ton of movies, uh, not all of them good, but all of them interesting, uh, like 2010, um, Running Scared, which that's not a sci-fi movie, uh, and uh, like Time Cop, <laughs> like he did Time Cop, another another movie that's like, oh, I'm glad it exists. It's not a great movie, but I'm glad that it, it exists. Uh, this is essentially uh, a retread of High Noon, uh, Sean Connery plays a marshal like the sheriff of this mining colony on Io. And it's very low tech. Something is driving the miners crazy. Um, it's basically, uh, you know, Sean Connery's like the older aging sheriff. He pisses off Peter Boyle's uh, crime boss, who basically has all the authority like on this, uh, on this colony. And they're going to basically, they're going to kill him. And he sends like to headquarters for help, but, it's not going to arrive in time. You know, like the horses are not going to come over the hill before he's got to deal with this stuff. And so how does he defend himself against these guys? And, you know, what does it mean to be, to do what he does and to put his life on the line? There's a subplot with his family that's really fascinating too. Um, and yeah, it's just like, it's great drama. It's very low budget, but they make it all, um, you know, believable. And it's got a great score by Jerry Goldsmith um, for Star Trek fans out there. Uh, and it's got a great climax and it's just, yeah, it's just a really great movie. Uh, and it's, it's brutal too. I wouldn't say that it's horror like monsters, but there is just some brutal things that happen and some people are very bad and mean to each other. And yeah, I mean, you've, if you haven't seen it, you, you have to check it out. If you're a fan of, um, space movies, Western movies, space, Western movies, definitely check out Outland. <laughs> That's it. If you have ideas about what should be on this list or want to tell me about your favorite space movies, your space, favorite space horror movies, let me know on Twitter and Facebook at Enterprising Individuals. That's E-I-S-T-P-O-D on Twitter and Facebook. We also have a Facebook discussion group called Enterprising Interlocutions. Look that up on Facebook and continue this discussion. We have a Discord channel as well. You can check out the link in our show notes. Hook up with us on Discord. We can chat about Star Trek, we're talking about horror movies, sci-fi horror movies in space, movies, TV, comic book video games, all of your favorite topics and topics that are covered by Just Enough Trope network shows. You can also reach the show at E-I-S-T-P-O-D, E-I-S-T-P-O-D at gmail.com with feedback and suggestions. 
Tell me what you think should be on this list, or tell me why you think Trek does have a shot at horror and what the best Trek horror is. We're waiting to receive your transmission. And that's it for this supplemental episode of Enterprising Individuals. If you're an Apple Podcast listener and you haven't yet, why not look us up on Apple Podcasts and make sure that you're subscribed to the show. Also, write us a little review if the spirit moves you and give us a rating at the very least. We'd appreciate it. If you're not an Apple Podcast listener, you can still subscribe to the show on Google Play or Stitcher or wherever you get our show from. And if you leave positive comments and ratings and reviews on those platforms as well, we'd be eternally grateful. Next week on Enterprising Individuals, Star Trek has a prequel problem. Sure, Star Trek Picard and the third season of Discovery are set to finally take us past the end of Voyager chronologically. But consider, Disco started before the events of TOS, and now they've got a contemporary spinoff in the Giorgio show. Harv Bennett tried for years to get a Starfleet Academy movie made, taking us back to when Kirk and Spock were cadets, and that's basically what we ended up getting with the J.J. Abrams films, which are reboots set in the original series era. I mean, the cancelled fourth Kelvin film was going to be a time travel story that would travel back to the beginning of the Kelvin series. For a franchise about where humanity is headed, Star Trek is certainly afraid of the future. And it all started, of course, with the debut of Star Trek Enterprise. What seemed like a sure bet, the guy from Quantum Leap punching aliens, turned into a weird blip in Trek's run of sometimes exceptional, but mostly solid weekly series. It had a weird tone, the characters were inconsistent, it was sometimes too self-aware and too influenced by current events. Uh, there was a t time, time war or something? Anyway, Trek is still Trek, no matter the era. An enterprise featured bold and inventive storytelling that sought to fill in the margins of a galaxy we thought we knew. Podcaster and musician Gooey Fame returns to the show next week to talk about a great first season episode of Enterprise, a series that had the daring and unenviable task of going forward by looking back and giving context to Trek's future by showing the struggles of the past. And it often succeeded. I mean, who doesn't love seeing Archer punch snooty aliens? It's the Andorian Incident, next time on Enterprising Individuals. And until then, I'm your Captain Caliban signing off and saying live long and prosper. Yeah.